0: Uh, Today is not a regular sermon, so to speak. Uh, If you look at the title of the sermon, uh, The Christian Atheist, uh, its I know that's the biggest oxymoron, obviously. Um, But it's the title of a book. uh, And it's the title of the book that we'll be studying on our Wednesday Prayer Fellowship beginning this Wednesday. So it is a... A, a plug, so to speak, uh, you know, some, something to encourage people to come join us on uh, our Wednesday prayer fellowship. Uh, and it's perfect because uh, the past three weeks we've been on standalone messages. Uh, if you can still remember, uh, we've talked about faith and fear uh, the first week of standalone messages. Uh, and then last week we talked about the summary of the book that we took up, that we finished taking up in uh, our prayer fellowship, which is crazy busy. Uh, and we looked at the summary of that book through the lives of Martha and Mary. So this morning, um, I'm going to take again this opportunity to introduce to you uh, this next book that we will be taking up uh, this coming Wednesday. Uh, it's a book that I've read probably more than 10 years ago, uh, or maybe not uh, Maybe a little bit less than 10 years ago, but um, it's 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 a really good book. Uh, and just like what I, I say to the Wednesday Prayer Fellowship people, uh, Wednesday Prayer Fellowship is more so on um, application, uh, you know, real life application of these biblical truths that we're studying. So if if that's you know something that you need or something that you want to learn from, please join us. Uh, this coming Wednesday at seven thirty uh, so again the title of this new book is called the Christian Atheist The Christian Atheist is by Craig Rochelle Craig Rochelle by the way is the pastor of the church that owns U version if you have that Bible in uh, your you know device uh, that's the u version that that brown Bible that's Craig Rochelle that's his church that's uh, sponsoring that that uh, Uh, that app. So uh, I'm going to begin this morning by reading a quote from the book. Uh, This is actually at the end of the book, this quote. Uh, And I want you guys to listen carefully because we're going to work off of this quote uh, as we continue the message, okay? So the quote says, and I quote, Are you a Christian atheist? Do you believe in God but live as if he doesn't exist? I'm praying that God leads you beyond first-line faith. Believing in Christ enough to benefit from him is at best shallow Christianity. At worst, it's empty deceptive religion, leading many down the broad path to eternal devastation. Step across the first line, but don't stop there. Line two will feel much better than line one. What's line two? Believing in Christ enough to contribute comfortably. It may seem right, But even that is a human-centered Christianity. Keep moving. Consider the third line. Ask what separates you from a holy, surrendered, spirit-filled, kingdom-driven life. Weigh your options. Life as it is or life as it could be. Consider the costs. Do whatever it takes. Step across the line. Welcome to true Christianity. So again, this quote came from the final challenge at the end of the book. And it pretty much uh, gives us a summary of what the book is all about. Uh, Now from the quote, it sounds like uh, there are stages to being a Christian. Uh, First stage is represented by the first line. The second stage is represented by the second line. And the third stage represented by the third line. Now in a way, these stages kind of represent the maturity of a Believer, uh, but it can also represent a believer's milestones as a believer continues to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in a nutshell, this book is about Christian growth. It's about the big S word that we uh, always talk about: sanctification. Uh, if you've been coming to this church for Uh, a while you know that this is uh, a staple theme in most of our preaching here that you've heard from this pulpit sanctification the growth of a believer and the reason for a focus on sanctification is that i firmly believe that as christians we should all be continuously growing to become more and more like the lord jesus christ that's our destiny so to speak that's the end game for christianity uh Not that we will ever ever, uh, reach that level of perfection perfection on this earth. uh, But that should be our lifetime goal as a follower of Christ. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, your goal is to be more like Him. And that is a lifetime goal. Uh, And so this book is in no way a book about perfection. Just like what I said earlier. Even though our goal is to become more and more like Christ, that kind of perfection, a Christ-like perfection, uh, I don't believe is attainable here on earth. Now, after we die, yes, why not? Uh, and I think that we will. And That's the perfection that, that, that death is ultimately the, the end of that uh, uh, search for or that uh, chase or race for perfection. Death is the end of that because after death, If you're a true believer, then you shall be perfected. You will have your own righteousness, so to speak. Um, But here on earth, I don't think we will ever reach that. Um, But it is our goal. That's where we should be headed. Um, If we're not growing towards that, uh, then the Apostle Paul says clearly to continue to examine yourself. Uh, All Christians should be headed towards that path. And, And having said that, uh, this book, uh, again, is in no way about perfection. Uh, I believe that this book is all about progression, uh, about growing in faith. Growing in faith and in works as a professing follower of Christ. Now, I emphasize faith and works because Christian growth is not just a growth in, fa- in faith. Um, it is also a growth in works or actions. Uh, in fact, one of the main themes of this book is that a Christian's profession of faith must be accompanied by, or reflected by, or evidenced by. Pick, pick whatever descriptive word you want to use. A Christian's profession of faith must always be evidenced, or reflected, or accompanied by his or her action, or his or her work, or his or her way of life. No ifs, ends, or buts about it. Uh, And the reason for that is because of the Great Commission. How are you to make disciples of all nations if there is nothing in your life that shows that you're a true believer? If there's nothing that you can show people objectively that happened to you as a believer? Because really you can talk about faith all you want if you can't show it, then that faith remains inside of you. I think it was John Piper who said that Faith is the root of Christianity. Meanwhile, the evidence is the fruit. The root you can't see, but the fruit you can. Uh, And the Bible talks about that as well. Uh, That if a a good tree, a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. That talks about how your faith should always kind of grow into uh, bearing fruit. So that that fruit you can use to feed others that fruit you can use to share to others now let me clarify another thing about this book this book is not saying that we are saved by works okay that's not what this book is talking about this book i think is pretty solid when it comes to the doctrine of salvation that yes we are saved by grace uh but what are we saved for uh ephesians 2 8 to 10 right we, have saved by, we, have, we are saved by grace through faith, but we are saved for works, good works that God has prepared for us from the beginning of time. So we're not saved by works. We are saved by faith. And this book talks about the same thing. Although there will be a discussion throughout our study of this book because the Bible says both. Right? The Apostle Paul says we are saved by grace. Through faith in Ephesians, but James, okay, those of you in the Love Cell group, you know what I'm talking about. James talks about we are also saved by works. How does that, how does that work? How does that coincide? Right? How does that, uh, how does, how do you make sense of that? Are we saved by faith or are we saved by work? Part of the study of this book is a discussion on that. Uh, so right now, as I introduce the book, let me clarify. Uh, To you uh, Why the Bible talks about both Um, Being saved by grace through faith And being saved by works And the key To understanding these truths uh, And these statements are both true Uh, The key to understanding them Is to understand the nuances Of the word saved If you know what the Bible says When it talks about being saved Or salvation then you will understand why the Bible talks about both. That we are both saved by faith and works. So really, right now, we're going to go back to basics. Uh, And hopefully, you will still pay attention to this. Hopefully, none of you will tune out and say, I already know that. Uh, I don't need to hear that again. Let me go and do something else. Give Give me a chance and please listen to this. So, understanding... The teaching of the Bible that we are saved both by works and faith, and both statements are true, uh, is to understand the nuances of the word "saved" or "salvation." Uh, so, if you think about it, when the Bible means uh, when the Bible mentions salvation, a lot of us automatically think salvation as in heaven, going to heaven, right? And with that, if, if that's all your understanding of what salvation is, uh, I'm sorry to say you're sadly mistaken. Uh, salvation, when it comes to biblical teaching, uh, is pregnant with meaning. Meaning there's a lot of things about salvation that we need to understand. Uh, and to, to do that, I always like to do a word study. Uh, so first, uh, where does the word salvation come from to begin with? Where does the word salvation come from to begin, to begin with? And I think if you understand that, you'll understand why salvation is through faith and by works. Um, so the word salvation comes from the root word salvage. Okay? Now I know in the Philippines, there's a different connotation to that, a negative connotation to that. Uh, but listen to what salvage really means. Like if you, and when you think about it, uh, salvaging is not a one-time act. When you think about what salvage is, what it means to salvage, it is not a one-time act, but it is a process. Okay, To salvage is to save. Okay? Same thing. When you salvage, what you're doing is you're saving something, but it's not a one-time act because that saving takes a process to complete. A process has to happen before whatever that is that is that you're salvaging ultimately becomes saved. Okay? hope oh, you're getting that. Uh, for example, okay, I'm going to give it to you as an example. For example, and God forbid, okay, if our church burned down, okay, if this whole church all of a sudden just went up into flames, okay, if our church burned down, the first thing we would do after the fire is put out, okay, is to go through the rubble and find anything that is still salvageable. Worth saving. Okay? Go through the rubble and look for. Okay, this chair, we can still use it. Uh, the, the equipment in the audio, the cameras didn't get burnt because they're in that little box. We can still use it. It's still salvageable. Okay? The speakers, the drum, whatever it is, as we go through the rubble, we'll find things that are still salvageable. Things that we can still. S- be saved after the church burnt down now, after finding those things that are salvageable and then what do, what do you do? you rescue those things you you take them out of where they're at and rescue them, bring them somewhere else okay and that's why I say salvaging or salvation is a process so after finding these salvageable things, you rescue these things uh, and if you Look at your thesaurus. Rescue is another word for save. So it's the same thing. Salvaging, rescuing is the same as saving. And after rescuing these things, what happens? We take the time to restore those things back to their intended original use and purpose. Again, if the salvageable things are the pews, obviously because of the smoke or because of the fire, the pews will not look the way they are. So what do we do after salvaging them, after searching and rescuing them? We restore them. We clean them up. We, you know, you bring it back to its original use, intended use, and purpose. Uh, again, media equipment, uh, you know, the computers upstairs. If they were salvageable, you do the same thing so that you can use them Again, uh, Bibles or uh, hymnals that didn't burn. Same thing, right? So the process of salvaging is not a one-time act. It is a process. First is the search, then the rescue, and then the restoration. Now, God's salvation, in in the most basic form, uh, follows a similar process. I say similar because obviously when it comes to God's salvation, there's some differences. So what happened uh, when God created the, the world and everything in it? And he, when He's done on the seventh day, He said, what, everything is good. And so He rested on the seventh day. And then after that, sin came to the world. And when sin came to the world, through Adam and Eve, through His greatest creations, uh, we can say that sin burnt down. God's creation destroyed God's perfect creation. But not everything in creation was destroyed. In fact, from God's perspective, all creation, even though it was tainted by sin, broken down by sin, burnt by sin, all creation was still salvageable. And so what did God do? He intentionally, first, what is the first Uh, action when it comes to salvaging? Search. He intentionally searched. Who did he search for first? After sin destroyed, burnt down his creation? Search for Adam and Eve, remember? After Adam and Eve committed the sin, they hid. Right? Because they were naked. And they didn't want God to see them naked, so they hid. Who searched for who? (laughs) It was God who searched, intentionally searched, for Adam and Eve. And it was God who came uh, to them. Um, And God has been doing that ever since. Intentionally coming, searching for salvageable creatures. Now the problem with this is that since it was God's greatest creation who burnt down the whole of creation, God as a judge needs for justice to be served as well. So not only is he coming for salv- salvageable creatures, he's also looking for justice. Because that's just who God is. So God is who is holy and who is righteous. He cannot just let sin be left unpunished. But because God loved his creatures so much, he had to make a way to rescue them. Otherwise, he couldn't. Because, yes, he was searching for them. But really, um, because of sin, that search is for search for justice. Um, so God, because he loved this creatures so much, made a way to rescue them from his own justice. And so God launched his own search and rescue operation by sending one man, uh, sent his own son, to come into the world, to become like one of us. And through him, the Bible says that the righteousness of God will be revealed. And God himself used Jesus as a substitute to pay for the penalty of man's sins. It is for this reason that Christ was crucified and died the death that was meant for us. So when that happened, the justice of God was served, the penalty for sin was paid. Now, there's still one problem left. How was God going to include mankind, sinful mankind, in that search and rescue operation? How are we included? So far, it's between Him and His Son. How do we get into that mix? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 gives us the answer. By God's grace or by God's undeserved merit, He saved us. Why? How? By giving us the faith to believe in His Son. Right? So when that happens in the life of a sinner, it's like getting pulled out of that mountain of rubble because of the fire to be salvaged. Right? That's what happens. When, when, grace, when by grace you receive faith and you start believing in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like getting pulled out of that rubble, that burnt pile of rubble to be saved, to be rescued. But this time, once you are pulled out from that rubble after the search and rescue, what happens next? You will now be restored, brought back to how God intended for that person to be when God created that person. Uh, when, I, when I think about that, as preparing this sermon, uh, I can't, I can't help but thank God for that process, right? Because otherwise we would have been left there, right part of the rubble that ultimately will just be thrown into the garbage. right But because of God's grace through faith, he included us in this salvation that only was between him and his son, he included the sinners. You and me. With that, uh, by His grace, we were saved. By His grace, we were included in that process. So now we're in the process. We've been salvaged from the rubble. Now we're into the restoration. For most of us, we are into the restoration process. That's what the Bible means when you are, when it says you are saved by faith. Uh, but notice that that search and rescue, salvation process doesn't stop at the search and rescue. It ends at restoration. Um, And restoration ends when we are, you know, become like Christ. And again, it's not going to happen in this world, but it will happen when we die or when He comes back. It's going to be finished, right? That's the one thing we know about God, that He will finish what He started. Uh, And those of us who have faith, okay, we are in this process of restoration. This is where the book Christian Atheist comes in. Okay? Everyone who calls themselves a Christian is in that process of restoration. Or let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. Some who call themselves Christians are in the process of of restoration not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is in the process of restoration sadly that's not true some who call themselves Christian are in that process of restoration uh, and I'm gonna unpack that a little bit more I got more time um, how do you know as a Christian as a professing Christian that How do you know if you're in that process of restoration? If you're continually growing in faith and in works. Okay? Say that again. The way for a Christian to know if they're in the process of restoration, after being searched and rescued from the rubble, is if they are continuously growing in faith and in works. If that's not you, but call yourself a Christian anyway, then, you know what, take the title of the book. That's probably who you are, Christian Atheist. That's where the title of the book comes from. There's a lot of Christians out there running around saying, Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm a believer. But lives as if God doesn't exist. But there's a faith there, if you can call it that. But there's no works. How do you evidence faith with no works? What is... James, it says that, right? I'll show you my faith by my works. Because it just, that's how these two work together. If you're a Christian or a professing Christian, it's not growing in faith and in works, then you're what the book calls a Christian atheist. Now, what the book does is it differentiates those who are in the process of restoration and those who are not by placing them in one of these three stages of spiritual maturity or lines, The quote I read earlier. And again, what we're going to do right now is we're going to take up these quotes so for the rest of my time here. We're going to take out these quotes. And what I want you to do is to be honest with yourself. Be honest where you're at. Once we start describing these quotes, what these quotes mean, what the lines mean, what the maturity means, please be honest with yourself and look at where you're at spiritually as far as these three stages are concerned. Um, And then, uh, hopefully, you will come and join our Wednesday Prayer Fellowship this coming Wednesday as we study and continue to learn more about Christian growth and setting our own spiritual milestones as we study this book. So, hopefully, you're not turned off by that yet. If you're still tuned in, it looks like everybody else is still tuned in. I still got 61 connections. Let's go. Let's start. Stage one, okay? Stage one. The book says this. Stage one. The book says on this stage are Christians who believe in God and the Gospel of Christ but only believe enough to benefit from it. Okay? Stage 1 Christians are Christians who believe in God and the gospel of Christ, but only believe enough of it so that they could benefit from it. What does that mean? I believe in God because I don't want to go to hell. For example. Or, I believe in God because I want a new car. Or I believe in God because I need to find a job. Or I believe in God because, fill in the blanks. Stage one Christians are those who believe in God and even the gospel. But they only believe it enough to benefit from it. Let me read you a quote from the book about this stage. It says here, quote says, Sadly, many who call themselves Christians live here. If there is a God, I want to be on His good side. I want to go to heaven. I want Him to bless me with good health, good relationships, and a happy life. Like the nine ungrateful lepers in Luke 17, once God had helped me, tendency is I forgot about Him. Most would admit that this is all the faith they can manage. We want God's benefits without changing the way we live. We want His best without our sacrifices. At the first line, we don't fear God or share our faith. We still love the world. We'll pursue happiness at any cost. The list goes on and on. Right? We'll pursue happiness at any cost. The list goes on and on. First line believers get what they can from God without giving much, if anything, back. Okay? Now... When you read that again, and hopefully we can, can just post the whole thing. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, so it, I think it's safe to say that first-land Christians are leeches, right? Yeah, they'll, they'll 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 cling on to God. Once they're full, they they pop off and do whatever they want. And then they when they lack again, cling on to God again, pop off whatever they want. Now. Most of that quote I think I agree with. But there are some sentences there that I don't agree with and I think I need some more explanation. Um, There's a sentence in the middle. um, And then there's one sentence at the end uh, where it says that first-line believers get what they can from God without giving much, if anything, back. Let me clarify what those sentences mean. First, the sentence in the middle of the quote says, Most uh, first-line Christians would admit that this is all the faith they can manage. Most first-line Christians would admit that this is all the faith they can manage. What's wrong with that sentence? Uh, I think that that sentence sounds like we produce our own faith, and somehow first-line Christians can only produce so little faith. Um, I don't quite agree with that. okay? Um, because that's what it sounds like. That saying, that we produce our own faith, but first-line Christians, they can only produce so much. So that's it. That's it. There's nothing else to produce. Um, I don't agree with that. Why? First, uh, we don't produce our own faith. Uh, faith is a gift by the grace of God. Uh, I think I said that already. It is not something we produce. So it's not something that we bring. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift. Of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's the first thing. That's why I don't quite agree with that sentence. Second, since God gave us faith, it is also Him who makes our faith grow and sustains our faith to the end. We cannot increase our faith by doing works. You get what I'm saying? I don't care how many old ladies you help cross the street. It's not going to increase your faith in God. That's not how it works. So how does it work? How do we increase our faith? Well, first clue is what I said, the first point. It is not ours. Faith We can't produce faith. It is a gift from God. So that means if it's coming from God, then guess who can increase it? God can increase it. How? Romans 1, 16 and 17. What does it say? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. There's our key word. Salvation, salvage, rescue, save. Right? Power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Why? Because in it, why is the gospel power, the power of God for salvation? For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed Look at that. From faith. okay. So for you to first be part of that saving power of the gospel, you need to believe it. That's the from faith. And then what does it do? What's the result of it? For faith. For more faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As you continue to grow, that's what you do. You live by faith in the Lord Jesus That's how God grows the gift of faith that he gave us to begin with. Through the power of the gospel. Because the gospel is where the righteousness of God is revealed to us by faith. So that we can have more faith. Or that it can sustain the faith that we already have. So that we slowly become righteous like the Lord Jesus Christ. So when, it, when the book says uh, first line Christians, they can only manage so much faith; they can only produce so much. Uh, I don't think so. There might be at this stage where that's all the faith they have. But can it increase? Yes. How? Learn more. What the gospel says. Understand the gospel, not just for God's so love, the word that He gave His Son, but what's underneath that? What's supporting? That line that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. There must be some huge foundation for that. Because that is the power of God to save. Right? And as a church, I I, I don't think we've... um, uh, As a church, uh, I don't think that we've come short of preaching the gospel to you guys. Now, if... Okay? Jesse just flashed me a message. Now, if, as a believer, all the faith that you want is the faith that you already have, and you don't want to grow, then that's a different story. Right? The question is, do you really have saving faith? But if you're the type, or you're the Christian who, man, I wish I had the faith of, I wish I had more faith, then God gives us the prescription. How? How? Believe in the gospel. Continue to preach the gospel to yourself. Continue to see God's faithfulness in the gospel to sustain, build, uh, grow your faith. Right? Because when, the more you read the gospel, the more you learn about Jesus Christ, the more you learn about God and His salvation, the more faith He will produce in your life, in your heart. All right? That's the first sentence that I didn't agree with. Second sentence in the quote that I would like to clarify is a sentence at the end where the author says that first-line believers get get what they can from God without giving much, if anything, back. First-line believers get what they can from God without giving much, if anything, back. Uh, The reason why I don't agree with this sentence is because God has never ever obligated us to give anything back. <laughs> we're not obligated by God to give anything back, whether it be money or time or effort. Listen, God does not need anything from us. The reverse is true. We need everything from Him. But, we, but He does not need anything from us. So what do you think the author means when he said that first-line believers get what they can from God without giving much back? I think that what that means is that a true believer will overflow with gratitude towards God that they can't help but to give towards God's work here on earth. A true believer who's overflowing with gratitude, not like the the lepers that were mentioned earlier. A true believer who is overflowing with gratitude can't help but to give towards God's work here on earth. It means that a true believer who has a genuine relationship with God and knows God intimately through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that believer's worship of God is never a forced act, but an overflow of love and thanksgiving. And again, everything else in that quote is pretty much on point. So what does that look like? This is what it looks like. If there's no hunger for you to learn more about the Word. If Bible studies are a waste of time. If listening to sermons makes you so sleepy. that You just can't help but just close your eyes and sleep. If there is no desire at all. You're not even fighting against sleepiness when it comes to listening to these things or may, or even reading your Bible. If there's no desire to do that, if there's no desire for prayer, if there's no desire for any like, anything like that, then I'm afraid that you're a Christian atheist. You believe, you believe that there is a God. But you live as if it doesn't exist. It doesn't. It's not real to you. You're not convinced. The question is where are you at? Um, are you a first-line believer? Again, the trick to get the most out of this sermon and out of this book study is to be honest with yourself. Be honest where you are spiritually and ask for grace and the faith that you lack. Okay? Are you a first-line believer? Is this you? Is the pursuit of happiness in this world or the pursuit of success and status in this world, is that more important to you than God? Does your life reflect that? And then that's you. Uh, now I'm not saying that, you know, God can't still rescue you. Yes. God can rescue anybody. God can save. Even the worst of the murderers, just like the Apostle Paul. Or even those who denied him three times, just like Peter. Or me. <laughs> so God can save. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that's not where you want to stay. I'm hoping that there is something in you that see that even though how small that faith is, it's kind of driving you towards more and more of God and knowing Him. Because what? Because there is a second stage to this. Um, and some of us are here. Second stage or second line uh, says this. The book says this. In the second stage are those who believe in God and in Christ, Christ's gospel enough to contribute comfortably. Second stage says that those are believers, this is where believers are who believe in God and Christ's gospel enough to contribute comfortably. The okay? book says this, and I quote, Past the first line are people who believe in God Not only enough to benefit, but also enough to give back. As long as it doesn't cost too much. Many first-line Christians eventually cross the second line. If I don't have to change too much, I'll do some of what God asks. If it doesn't hurt too much, I'll get more serious about God. But everyone has their limits, right? Like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 I was willing to go along with the religious rules as long as it didn't hurt too much. I'd serve Jesus in ministry, but I didn't want too many critics. I'd give up some things for Christ, but being away from my family often was too much. I'd follow Jesus anywhere as long as the job included insurance for my family. The third line was just inches in front of me. Might as well have been miles. So these are the believers who... Just do enough to satisfy whatever guilt they have. Okay? Or, or to look like everybody else. Just enough. But not too much. Once it passes their comfort zone, that's it. That's my limit. Not comfortable in doing this. That's, that, that's it for me. <laughs> Second line believers. Right? And many believers are here. Including myself, I think, right? Uh, I'll give some, but not all. I'll give some so I can look like everyone else, but I won't give like everyone else. Best example, I think, is Ananias and Sapphira. You, you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? Right. Let's read it. Uh, Acts 5, 1 to 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? much but Peter said to her how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord behold the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last when the young man came and they found her dead they carried her out and buried her beside her husband what happened great fear came upon the whole church about all who heard of these things. Did Ananias and Sapphira really want to give? Or they just want to look like everybody else. So they gave just enough. Not too much, because they want to keep some for them themselves, but they gave just enough. And I think ultimately they didn't want to give. They didn't want to give, but they professed that they wanted to. And made it look like they wanted to just, like to, just so that they could look like everyone else. But Peter, through the Holy Spirit, saw all these things and exposed Adonis and Sapphira. How? Well, you read what happened, right? It's a miracle we don't have funerals every week. <laughs> There's a lot of people like that. Yes, I will take the office of deacon. But during the year, what? Give only what they want to give. Not going past that threshold of comfort. Once it goes past, that's it. I'm out. But you profess, but you committed. Doesn't matter. My comfort zone is up to here only. I have other problems. I have other things to take care of. That's it. I cannot commit further. Or when it comes to your offerings, or when it comes to your time, when it comes to your effort, when it comes to say yes yeah, just like everyone else. Yeah, I'll take my nomination. But are we willing to commit? Sometimes no. Are we that? Are we second line believers? Are we Ananias and Sapphira believers? Because you know what? The Bible says this. God cannot be mocked. You're not going to fool God because you you said yes to your nomination and you got voted in. Meanwhile, you don't really want to commit. If you're going to serve out of duty, or if you can give out of duty, to make yourself more like a Christian than you really are, I would rather just for you to stop and not give at all. I don't want to see you fall down, dead. The rest of the deacons carry you out, <laughs> because that's <laughs> second-line believers, right? And 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 I like what. The result was in the church. Fear came over the church of Jerusalem at that time. Nowadays, where is that fear? When it comes to church, people seem to just give leftovers. This is all I can give. That's 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 it. Meanwhile I call myself a Christian, but this is it. It's enough. When it starts to hurt, I, I start walking away. Or people serve out of obligation. I, I do this because I have to. Meanwhile, you're all grumpy and doing it. There's no joy in it. And I think that if if that's you, if you serve out of obligation, that's why you only do the minimum. When it comes to ministry, uh, you only give the minimum. When it comes to your, your time and money, you only... You only give the minimum because you it's out of obligation. You don't really know the God that you're serving. That the God that you're serving is the greatest giver. And if you think that God does not see through the act, just like what Ananias and Sapphira did, guess again. Check out Revelation three fourteen to sixteen. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, what? Write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. What did he say? I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Listen. When Jesus saved us, he didn't just save the minimum. He didn't just say, okay, I'm just going to save your leg. I'm just going to save your fingertips. He saved the whole, complete salvation. Even after death. Not just the minimum. Why? Is it because he, he needs to? No. But that's how he saves. He saves fully. To the point where he had to sacrifice his own Life for you and me. That's how he saves. He saves fully. So when he he says, I don't want you to be hot or cold, I want you to, if you're cold, stay cold. If you're hot, then be hot. If not, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. When he wants everything from us, he wants everything. He doesn't want halfway. And it's because he saves fully. And because he is worth it. Right? Jesus doesn't just save us from the penalty of our sins, he also saves us from the power of sin in our lives. Again, faith and works. That's why the Bible talks about us as new creatures. Meaning that the whole creature is new. Not just part of the creature is new. The whole creature becomes new. So when we serve or act out of duty, out of obligation, we don't really give our all. Because why? Ultimately it's because we lack faith. Faith. That God will repay and that God will replenish whatever it is that we have sacrificed in serving Him. So if we think that God will only give us the minimum, guess what? We will only give the minimum. That's all you give me, this is all I give back. That's why when it comes to our commitment to the church and its ministries, it's the first one to be dumped. It's the first one to be put on the back burner when things go wrong in our lives. Something happened in our lives, whatever it is, your pet died or something. Ministry to the church is the first one to go, I can't do that anymore. My fish just died. That's why we always have to have certain conditions that have to be met before we can serve. Right? Is it air conditioned at that church? Do they have uh, cushions on the seats? No. No, I can't serve there. Do they have a nice vacuum? No, I can't no, I can't. I'm not gonna clean. Do they have a dishwasher? No. Okay, no. I'm not gonna wash the dishes. Is that how service should be? That's like that's like the extreme negative of stage two, right? We serve out of obligation because we don't really trust the God that we're serving. Now on the positive, you did take a step up from stage one and tried to at least serve. There are people who do that. They are just struggling to serve. There's, there's that struggle. And that's good because in the struggle is where you'll find that God will provide. What did Paul say? I, I rejoice in my weakness. Why? Because that's when he sees the power of God working. So the struggle is good. Don't try to run away from that. There will always be struggle. But in the struggle, trust that God will be there for you. And therefore, with that faith, you continue to serve even in the struggle. That's serving by faith, not by obligation. Right? Again, when God saves, He saves fully. So when we begin to grow into that, begin to grow in our faith, begin to grow in our works, same thing. We don't grow partly. We don't work partly. We give, we work, we serve fully. Why? Because we trust that God will continue to sustain fully. And ultimately, he wants us all to be at stage 3. right? What does stage 3 say? Stage 3 is where those who believe in God and Christ's gospel believe it enough to give their entire lives to it. Does that mean that we're all going to be pastors or missionaries? No. That means we're at that point in Romans 1, 16 and 17 where it says, The righteous shall live by faith. Now again, we might not be there exactly, but we're headed towards that direction and listen the Bible calls for a straight, stage 3 Christianity right? Ch- check out Matthew 16 20-26 whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it 26 for what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul so what is, the, what, what is Matthew saying you worry about your life, you're going to lose it. But if by faith you give your life to God, you'll find life, right? And it says there, your whole life, not just part of it. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that equal Partial, obligatory serving and giving? No. Right? I give my life by faith. I live my life by faith in the Son of God. Because I saw what He did. Loved me so much. Gave Himself for me. That's how full God saves. So the result of that can not be half-baked Christians. Well, we're probably half-baked now, but we'll... Hopefully, grow into it. Right? That's our hope. Acts 20 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Again, this is Apostle Paul talking like, I don't care about me, I know where I'm going. As long as I finish my course, as long as I do what God has called me to do, which is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, then I could die right now or I could be dead in a couple of weeks. As long as I do that, I'm good. Is that us? Is that where we're headed towards? Is that your your goal? I hope so. Last one, Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surprising worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Will there be suffering involved? Is the step from two to three be a walk in the park? No. There will be suffering involved. But in that suffering is the worth of the Lord Jesus There will be suffering, but I count them as loss. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. Now there are some of us in stage 1 or even stage 2, but again, our ultimate goal as believers is to be stage 3 believers. And this can only happen by the grace of God through the power of of the gospel and prayer. First step to getting there is to be totally honest with ourselves. And which stage we're at now. Don't think just because all this basic stuff, I'm past that. Do you probably are not even at stage one at that point? Take a look at yourself, humble yourself before God, and ask Him. Ask Him for more faith as we continue to study and learn more about Him through His Word. And so, my closing is to invite you, come. Help us to learn how to make milestones in the Christian life. Help us to see that faith is evidenced by, shown through, works. And that as we grow in faith, we also must grow in works. There is no... You can't grow in works and not in faith. If that's happening in you... Be careful, because Matthew 7 says what? We prophesy in your name. We cast out demons in your name. What did Jesus say? Get away from me. I don't know. I never knew you. Because ultimately, if that's all that's growing, then you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons. It has to grow at the same rate. Faith has to grow. But ultimately, if only faith is growing and no works, what is that? How, how do you know that that's even real? If there's no evidence for it. But good feelings and emotions. And, but there's no works involved. There's no suffering. There's no... How, how does that become real? Again, this is the extremes of Martha and Mary, right? Mary, all faith. Martha, all works. What did we say last week? No, they got to work together. They got to work together. It is by faith that you can continue to do works no matter how hard the works are. If you have faith in God to sustain and be with you till the end, that's where works start to grow. Where you start taking more risks, start taking more, and start getting out of your comfort zone in order to serve. Why? Because you love God so much that it has to overflow. It overflows out of you through your works through your giving that's how the Christian life is that's why I like the book when it says at the end welcome to true Christianity that's what it is it's not all about just sitting here and learning it's not all about just all I'm working I'm part of all the ministries no That's has to be both working side by side for the glory of God so I invite you this coming Wednesday come join us for our prayer meeting, it runs from 7:30 to 9 p.m. Some of you, that's an eternity. <laughs> that's like, when is this gonna end? But hopefully, my hope is, as you continue to learn more about Christ and faith builds up even more, and you get to in, and that new creature starting to take shape. That you'll you'll start to enjoy these things. You'll start to crave it even. To the point where no, Wednesday cannot pass if I cannot attend the prayer meeting. Or Sundays, I have to be there for Sunday school and the service. Or if you have cell groups, cell groups is a, is a celebration, not a pain that you have to do in order to be certified Christian. doesn't work out that way. But for those of you as well who are just content at line one, hey, if I die, I'm saved. Yeah, maybe. Um, But I hope that you grow out of that and start showing some evidence that you are a Christian. Because the Bible talks about both. Amen? Let's pray. The Lord bless you and his face to shine up